Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. Coming up on this week's program, the brilliant broadcaster and academic Professor Alice Roberts will be spilling the secrets of the dead as she talks about her book, Ancestors. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us uh, is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD to discuss. You're both very welcome. Our first story. Shane is about nuclear fusion. Fairly serious step in the right direction. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's always supposed to be 30 or 40 years away. And this has been said for a long time. Um, but however, things have gradually changed over the last uh, year, uh, years. You know, research has carried on in the way that research normally does, which is gradual. Um, but we, we have seen a big step at the JET facility. That's the Joint European Tourist in Oxford in the UK. Um, they recently were able to create um, a, a nuclear fusion reaction that lasted for a whopping five seconds, which is a long time. And it produced... 59 um, megajoules, which is is enough, I believe, to boil 60 kettles. So listeners are probably going, that doesn't sound very impressive. This doesn't <laughs> warrant, you know, tens of billions of, of euros of investment. But um, what they've shown here is, is a big step forward. Um, there are two global approaches to nuclear fusion, which is joining small elements together to produce slightly heavier ones with the release of energy as a consequence, as opposed to fission, where we split large heavy elements into smaller bits with energy, but that has nuclear waste. This is a clean one. This is the panacea. This is the thing we all need to move away from fossil fuels, uh, because one kilogram of fissionable fuel is equivalent to 10 million kilos of fossil fuels. So like it's it's in- incomparably large. Um, so it's a big deal. They produced a plasma that's stable for five minutes or for five seconds. And they did that by creating a new mixture of fuel. Um, so they used deuterium and tritium, which are two isotopes of hydrogen. And um, they like, you know, the, the fact that it's stable is the big thing, right? It, it crucially didn't produce more power than it took to make it. And that is the, the bar, really, right? So any power plant has to give out more than it consumes. And so it's, it's still quite inefficient. But what they're showing in this experiment is that this new mixture of fuel, when put into um, Jet's big brother called ITER in France, when that's put in, they predict that they will get 10 times more fuel out than in, 10 times more energy out than in. So that's, that, that is a massive leap forward. This, this could make nuclear fusion feasible. I do note, however, that the amount of money that's put into uh, nuclear fusion, I would have thought it was a lot higher. It's, it's tens yeah. of billions, right? But which, which is not a lot of money. So there are $2,000 billionaires in the world Combined, combining all of their wealth, they have an, a master fortune of $8 trillion, right? So there's a lot of money in the world. And we're not investing anything at near enough into research in areas like this, you know, for us to find a way to stop the uh, effects of climate change yeah. in its tracks, right? And for us to live safely uh, beyond I, the next 100 years. I've, um, I was fortunate enough to go to ITER in France and uh, stand in the place that will be the hottest place in the universe when it is turned on. And the facility is enormous. 
and that is to just produce this experiment. And so while I understand, you know, your sort of um, criticism of global society, like how do we not fix this quicker, just to get an experiment in principle in ITER is such a huge technological and engineering feat that trying to translate that into powering all of our homes for the rest of our, our lives across the world, it just seems like such, it seems so far away, like 30, 40 years, you know, you might as well, in my opinion, it might as well be 300 years looking at the rate of, of speed we're, we're talking about here, but that's just me. I, I, I do think obviously this is the future at some point. The, the question is, will we ever get there in time? Um, Ruth, our second story has to do with pharmaceuticals in our rivers. That's right, Jonathan. This is the largest ever study looking at pollution of pharmaceuticals in river water. It's a study from researchers in the University of York, and they went out to a thousand test sites at 258 rivers in 100 countries all over the world. And, and perhaps not unexpectedly, um, the results aren't great. Um, so more than a quarter of the rivers that they sampled had what they defined as active pharmaceutical elements. So at a concentration that's high enough that they believe they could actually have some sort of impact for people right. using the water or, or organisms in the water. So, I mean, it, the most common things they found were paracetamol, nicotine, caffeine uh, so sort of they've called those lifestyle drugs but but also um epilepsy and diabetes medication and also in africa anti-malarial medication so medications that are widely prescribed again perhaps not surprisingly the worst pollution were in largely low to middle income countries where there's more raw sewage dumping and poorer wastewater treatment um so that kind of aligns to, to the countries that did worst and best in this analysis so it's certainly very concerning because the reality is we don't really know what the impact of this is right now but um well less it, less fish with headaches is one well that could be one yeah and and uh yeah or a, or a very <laughs> active fish if all that caffeine and, and nicotine is going in and and i mean we do know for example that like dissolved human contraception going into water sources does seem to have an impact on development and reproduction of fish mm. you know we've always been concerned about antibiotics going into the water could that produce uh, you know antibiotic resistant bacteria but i think this is part of a bigger picture and i mean you know back in the last decade scientists came up with this idea of planetary boundaries and and that there is only a certain amount that this planet can absorb in terms of waste that we will put out there into the system. And I guess for most of us, medicines haven't been at the top of the list. We've been thinking about plastics and, mm. you know, how we have a full life cycle for these things. But but we really have to start thinking about that full life cycle of how we're going to deal with things for everything. And I think, we, you know, we have to start thinking about, you know, what are the things that we want and what are the things that we need? Because we can only dilute a certain amount. So we're going to have to prioritize diluting things that we need and not maybe things that we want. So this obviously isn't downstream from pharmaceutical plants. It's more stuff that comes out from our... Well, Excreted. Yeah, right. well, bo it's both. They did find higher <laughs> concentrations. If there were, I said excretion. That's the scientific word, Jonathan. So we yeah, don't have well, to say that on I've the been, radio. I've, I've spent the day, I, I spent the morning with my young children and that's pretty much, <laughs> uh, all they talk about. So, but so, yeah. um, but, but have, is there not a, an engineering solution to this? Is there not a way of maybe trapping or, or filtering out? E if, if, you know, if you're on yeah. medication, you get a little device and that device goes... It, it, 
into the into your toilet maybe yeah it it made me think the same way i mean at the moment the most efficient wastewater treatment plants can get maybe 99.9 percent of this stuff out but even our best efforts at the moment can't get it out and it's about volume we continue to give out more and more and more pharmaceutical interventions so we have to now unfortunately also start thinking about that and certainly if you're someone who believes in homeopathy you should be very very worried and we are not. <laughs> well, when you say, if you're someone who believes in homeopathy, I mean, if people who are taking homeopathic drugs, they're going to have no effect on the rivers, right? Well, they're not. But if you believe that these tiny concentrations could have massive impacts, right. then basically your drinking water has turned into a homeopath- homeopathic medication. Right. Um, our, our third story, all right, I get it now. Our third story uh, is to do with this drift that we're finding societally into a world where reality and unreality are not so easy to distinguish. This is um, a fake faces generated by AI, Shane. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's work from Lancaster in the UK and Berkeley in California. AI now can create such realistic human faces that people can't distinguish the real ones from the fake ones. And indeed, they're more likely to think the fake ones are uh, are trustworthy when compared to the real ones. And this is very worrying because of huge, like you could scam all around you with this sort of technology. They're produced using something called generative adversarial networks. Now, we're, we're familiar with the discriminative variety, which um, allow us to uh, filter spam. So what they do is they take in data, which is all the words in your emails, and then they have to apply a label, either spam or not spam. And uh, that can be good. So we don't get like threats or requests for money, etc. And what a generative adversarial network does is the opposite. So it takes the label like, uh, and it uh, creates data that would uh, sort of fit with that label. So in other words, it would be able to create either a real email or a spam email. And you might look at it and not be able to tell the difference. Right. And so that that's what's happened here. They're able to use it for voice and they're able to use it for faces. And so they can create faces that that look incredibly human and uh, look real. And what this survey has done is they've asked 315 people to distinguish the real from fake uh, using 400 photographs of of people across um, different ethnic groups. And they showed a score of 48 percent, which is slightly lower than than even. So people just really can't do it. They tried to train them and they saw uh, no significant improvement. uh, They also asked separately 223 people to rate the trustworthiness of images on a scale from one to seven. Now, there's an awful lot of uh, things I could say about how can you determine someone's trustworthiness from looking at a photograph, but they asked them nonetheless. And they found that um, the fake ones are slightly more trustworthy. Now, they suggest that could be because with the fake faces, there's going to be more regression to the normal look. Um, so the yeah. average person. And so you might find that an average looking person is more like you and therefore is much more trustworthy. The, so, the Carl yeah. Maldens of the world um, probably <laughs> not going to turn up in this fake AI algorithm. Probably not. But um, that's, a, the, that's, a, that's an old reference. Who Mickey Rourke, the Mickey Rourke's of this world, probably not going to show up in this AI algorithm. I don't know who either of those people are. Yeah, I, I have no idea who you are talking about. But, uh, you know, you're considerably older than I am, Jonathan. We have to remember someone, that. Some, okay, um, Pete Davidson, you know, the, the guy who's dating um, Kim, or at least was for, for a period dating. I don't know what's going on there, but um, he, he also probably would not show up in a 
Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's just an unusual looking face. So these, these fake AIs are probably quite generic Microsoft Office ad sort of style faces. Absolutely. And I look forward to you responding to his solicitor in due course. <laughs> Let's move on to our fourth story, shall we? Um, Ruth, this is about heart cells and fake fish. That's right. This is a first of its kind experiment from researchers in Harvard and Emory, and they have created a fully autonomous artificial fish. And this was published in Science this week. So what they're calling their biohybrid fish, it's a little, I can't tell exactly how big it is from the paper, but it looks like it's about a centimetre or a centimetre and a half long. And it was made using paper, plastic, gelatin and a tail fin that was lined on each side with human heart muscle cells derived from stem cells. And the contractions on each side allow the fish's tail to pull, be pulled from side to side, allowing it to swim. Uh, they also implanted in this little fish a, a pacing node, a bit like a pacemaker that gets put in a, in a heart, and that controls the rhythm and frequency of the contractions. And those two elements mimic what happens in a human heart, which can actually pump without signals from the brain because it has this pacemaker and this special type of tissue. So the cells contract on one side, pull the tail in that direction, and then contract on the other side and those two layers of muscle and the pacer allow us to have continuous spontaneous and coordinated movement and that's really important because you know we, we've done lots of engineering with tissues and things in petri dishes but actually to have that continuous spontaneous and coordinated movement is the breakthrough here and there's really good videos of the fish online if people want to see it yeah you um, can see that on our twitter page what is right. the point of this frankenfish wreath well i mean it's all about heart research and how we can potentially be able to replace bits of heart in the future. Um, you know, this fish uh, swam for uh, over 100 days and about 38 million beats. And in fact, it also got better as it went along. It got stronger. And, and it's all very well to say we can engineer bits of tissue, but scientists are really still learning how to build with human tissue and, and, and creating. This is a big advance if we ever want to get to the point where we might be actually able to build replacement organs on scaffolds. We have to understand the physics and, and the movement and the biochemistry as well as just the shape. So a really big leap forward. Yeah, and a very cute video. Um, I mean, once you know that it's made from a strip of human heart cells that is beating without mind endlessly until it exhausts itself, it's a little less cute, but maybe just try and push that to the side and watch the cute video. Um, Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD, thanks very much for joining us. All right, on the way, academic and broadcaster Professor Alice Roberts spills the secrets of the dead. <laughs> Now, it's kind of funny that considering they've been dead for quite some time, prehistoric bodies buried thousands of years ago have been pretty busy in the past number of years, rewriting human history over and over. Professor Alice Roberts is an anatomist, broadcaster and professor of public engagement in science at the University of Birmingham. She's also the author of Ancestors, a prehistory of Britain in seven burials. She joins me now. Alice, you're very welcome to the programme. Uh, the, the book sort of looks at seven a fascinating burial sites across Britain. And I'm going to talk about those in a bit. But as I said at, at the top of the program, um, the funny thing is in this field, despite the fact that the subject is thousands of years old, it's changing so much. I mean, even you've been writing and broadcasting about this the past 15, 20 years. It's even changed a lot during that time. It really has. And, and it's a combination of um, lots of different things. So if we're trying to understand where we come from as a, as a species and looking at human evolution and then looking at 
the human colonization of the world, which is, you know, fascinates me endlessly. I made a BBC series about that about 14 years ago and, uh, and wrote a book at, at the time. And then if we come all the way through to, you know, more recent, what I think of being uh, as being more recent times, so, so the Bronze Age, which obviously is still a, a few thousand years ago, we've just got uh, so much more evidence now than we had, as you say, even going back sort of 15, 15, 20 years ago. And we've got more evidence in terms of you know, actual physical evidence. So we've had the discovery of, of new uh, fossils, the discovery of uh, of new archaeology, so so material culture that our ancestors created, but we've just had this um, revolution happening in archaeology as well, with the use of a of a completely new branch of science, which is genetics, mm. and you know so that we're we're now able to look at um, whole genomes of our ancestors. And there's so much information to be drawn out of those genomes, which then goes along with the information that we've got about the the cultures of the past. Um, and that, uh, I suppose, marriage of technology and new findings is, is really um, uh, well epitomised in the, the Amesbury Archer. Can you tell me um, who the Amesbury Archer was and, and about this extraordinary site that he was found in? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is an extraordinary site and it's one of those kind of quite random discoveries. So it was back in 2002 that he was discovered and he was discovered on the outskirts of Amesbury, which is a town quite near Stonehenge, a few miles away from Stonehenge. And uh, he was found during the course of routine archaeological work being done ahead of a, um, a development. And it was a, it was a school and a new road was being built as well. And the archaeologists had done their usual um, surveys to see whether there was likely to be any archaeology, and they didn't think there was. So they'd, they'd looked at the maps, they'd looked at aerial photos, they'd done a bit of geophysics, and they, they couldn't really see much on the ground at all. So they weren't really expecting to find much archaeology. When the diggers moved in and started peeling back the topsoil, they suddenly realised they were dealing with a couple of Roman cemeteries, which had, mm. were completely invisible <laughs> on the on the geophysics. Um, but then on the edge of one of these cemeteries, um, on a Friday afternoon, they found these two big pits, much bigger than the, the graves across the rest of the cemeteries. They weren't quite sure what they were, started digging down in them and realised that they were burials. And they were burials that contained very characteristic Bronze Age pottery. So they realised at that point that it was Bronze Age and you know, a couple of thousand years older than the Roman remains that they had been finding. And they had to get it finished because they were just about to be stopping work for a bank holiday weekend and they didn't want to leave those burials open over a weekend. So they carried on working into the night on that Friday evening. Hmm. And Andrew Fitzpatrick, who led the dig, was pretty sure that it was a a, a really significant burial. Uh, went home that Saturday morning, was looking through the literature just to check um, it, that it was as significant as he thought it was. And it, it was, and it still is, the richest Bronze Age burial that's been found in Britain, and I think indeed in Europe. So it's it's quite phenomenal and rich in terms of the number of objects, nearly 100 objects in the grave, which obviously tell us a huge amount about Bronze Age culture because they're cultural objects with a person. So they've got they've got a kind of context. They're not you know they're not just found discarded in a field or you know maybe in a rubbish pit on a settlement. They're actually with that person, and and that's a meaningful association. 
Uh, yeah, as you say, the, the, the finding was extremely rich in, in that there were so many interesting items there, loads and loads of weapons. So this is obviously where um, the Amesbury archer got his name, but lots of other things too. Yeah, so he's he's buried with um, 18 beautiful flint arrowheads. And of course, the shafts of the arrows haven't survived. So this wasn't the kind of burial where you get any kind of organic preservation. So it is just kind of stone stuff, mostly that survives, but also metal. So he comes from the very early part of the Bronze Age that we, we're actually starting to call the Copper Age now because uh, they weren't quite making bronze at that point. They were using copper. And he oh. has uh, three copper knives with him, which is you know unheard of. Nobody's been found buried with three copper knives. Um, and also gold as well. So he's got two beautifully decorated curls of gold, which are quite mysterious. We don't know what they are. They might be wraps, like hair wraps, or they might, might have been wrapped around the shafts of large feathers. They would have had to be quite large, maybe eagle feathers. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's discussion about what those gold things actually are, but they're obviously decorative, and it's interesting because you know this was this is some of the very earliest metal uh, to be to be found in Britain. So this was a, a beaker burial, and I I had never heard of um, beaker burials until I st- started reading this book. What is a beaker burial, and why are they significant? Well, the name just comes from the objects that tend to be buried with people. So. In the um, in the early Bronze Age, what we get is this culture where um, individuals are buried. Um, although there are some communal burials in the preceding Neolithic, the um, well, we don't know what happened to most people's bodies actually because um, they're not represented. You know, we don't we don't have cemeteries really in the in the Neolithic. We have some people, um, and they must have been special in some way, buried in long barrows, which are communal tombs. But then there's a big change in the Bronze Age. And what happens in the Bronze Age is you have these individual burials. Sometimes they're in kists, and a kist is a stone-lined grave. Uh, sometimes they are just in earth, earth graves. Sometimes they're in timber-lined graves, as we think the Amesbury Archer was, was in. And they're buried with pottery, and they're buried with, with pottery beakers. And they're very beautiful beakers. They're big, um, big pottery beakers um, standing um, you know, sort of 20 to 30 centimetres tall, um, and they have a slightly outturned lip, and we have similar a similar culture on the continent where um, they they're of, it's often called the bell beaker culture on the continent because they do look like upside down bells, uh, hmm. these beakers, and they're they're very beautiful, uh, but they're they're not wheel thrown. The the pottery wheel wasn't around at the time, so they 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 are kind of built up in clay, and um, sometimes they are used as cremation urns. So we do we do find some cremations in those urns, and you get really big. Um, uh, cremation urns in the Bronze Age, uh, but in the case of the Amesbury Archer, he's got the, these kind of smaller beakers with him, uh, and actually that that term beaker then refers to the whole cultural package, which which isn't just those beakers, but um, is is lots of lots of the rest of the material culture that kind of goes along with it, including right. evidence of metalworking. This whole culture, including that kind of tendency to put beakers in burials, um, is also tied up with the spread of metallurgy. One of the things that um, we found from uh, analysing this this body is that um, the Amesbury Archer did not come from anywhere near Amesbury. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the DNA studies and the, the sort of more modern techniques, uh, what they've revealed about the Amesbury Archer? Yeah, so, well, the Amesbury Archer has been a bit mysterious for a while, actually, because um, his, his DNA was a bit fragmentary and difficult to deal with. Um, but I'll come back to that. Uh, 
what we now know from studies of ancient genomes, so DNA that's been extracted out of out of other skeletons, um, is that there was a, a migration across Europe in in the early Bronze Age, and that in Britain it was quite significant in terms of we we think there was a 90% population replacement in the early Bronze Age happening over a few wow. centuries. So I know it's quite, we didn't, yeah, we hadn't kind of anticipated it. Um, you know, archaeologists have been kind of thinking, debating about how this transition happened. So you see a new culture appearing somewhere, like like the, this beaker culture. And then you think, well, you know, how is that taking place? Is that just a few people coming over from continental Europe with these ideas? Because clearly these ideas come from continental Europe. They, we've got earlier dated sites in Europe with very similar culture. They take on their own flavour in, in in Britain, certainly, but they're, you know they're very similar in the in the rest of Europe. Um, is it just a few people coming over and that idea catching on, um, or is it a, a big migration of uh, of people? So um, when you say this. Um population came over and and sort of displaced 90 percent of the of the population that was there that's not just in in the culture you're talking about um we can see that in the dna yeah yeah absolutely no this is from the dna so so with the culture what we see is you know a big change and particularly a big change in burial practice we do see some elements of neolithic culture persisting but it's it's kind of minor um and and there is this big cultural change so so the question has been you know is is that a new group of people that, that's coming in with this culture? Or mm. is it just a few people coming over and their ideas spreading? Um, what the what the genome analysis does is, is able enable us to actually answer that question. Because if you look at people 2,500 years ago, and then you look at people a few centuries later, their ancestry is completely different. You know, 90% um, of their ancestry has been replaced. Hmm. So, so what this means is that there is a significant replacement of people. What we don't know, um, I mean, what you get then is that, you know, this this kind of um, genetic discovery gets gets published and then you get newspapers jumping on it going, uh, Dutch hordes killed off the people who made Stonehenge. Yeah. And it's it, and, you know, really kind of inflationary headlines about <laughs> about invaders. And, it's, it's what uh, jumps to mind, though, when you talk about when you talk about such a huge change in a short period of time. This is the first thing I thought of. It's so tricky, though, because actually what we're looking at is a huge, it is a huge change, but it's happening over three centuries. And so what we need to do now is really refine that. So what we need now is more genomes. Um, mm. So so more um, archaeogenetic research, looking at people within those three centuries. Because if we're seeing a change that's happened over that three cent- over those three centuries, so we know that genomes are significantly different three centuries later, um, we don't know if that is happening gradually over three centuries or whether actually it happened in a couple of decades in one of those centuries. So we need to really refine that. And that's um, that requires more uh, genetic work. The other thing that we don't know at all, partly because we don't know how swift it was over those 300 years. You know, it could have been decades, but it could have been 300 years. Um, we don't know how dramatic it was on the ground. So it could have been dramatic. It could have been that it was invaders. It could have been that there was violence, although we you know, we haven't got an obvious archaeological signal of that. But now archaeologists will be going back to the evidence and looking for more evidence to, to really kind of interrogate whether there was evidence of any, any increase in violence around that time. Um, it could have been happening much more gradually. And it, it could be just that you've got um, 
you know, families coming over from the continent and settling and perhaps the the way of life that the beaker people have is is somehow more successful than the preceding Neolithic farmers or the, mm. you know, the Neolithic farmers they're, they're living alongside presumably when they first arrive. And when I say successful, I mean kind of in an evolutionary way. So um, they're having more children. And over those over those three centuries, it could be that. It could be that, yes, you've got a fairly significant influx of people coming in, but that actually what you've also got happening is that those communities are growing um, much more quickly than the the descendants of the Neolithic farmers. And so three centuries later, their genes predominate. So we don't know what the processes are at the moment. Hmm. We know that this big change happened, which is which is brilliant, you know, to have that insight. But now we want to know more detail, don't we? But this Amesbury Archer then was was presumably one of these newcomers. Well, so that's it's tempting to think that because um, you know he dates to um, that period. As I said, his his DNA has been quite difficult to um, disentangle. Right. There are other ways that we can look at whether people are likely to have been incomers. And actually, um, in in a way, DNA is not terribly useful for an individual because even if he has genetic ancestry, which um, connects him, for instance, with other groups, other populations in Europe, it doesn't mean that he's moved from that particular place to 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 Wiltshire in his lifetime. It could that could be from his parents. It, do you know your ancestry yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is um is inherited by by its nature. Hmm. But your teeth aren't. And um so we know that he made his teeth in a different place. And you can chemically analyze uh oxygen and strontium isotopes, so different forms of oxygen and strontium in teeth. And when you're making your teeth as a child, um, you know, obviously the way you make your body is by you make it out of your environment. Um, there's that, you, you know, you are what you eat. Hmm. So he's making his body out of what he eats and drinks as a child. And what he eats and drinks as a child will will record the geological signature that he in the area that he grows up in. So we're then able to match the the oxygen and strontium isotopes in his teeth with geology. And we know that he's not from not from Wiltshire. And the most likely area that he's from is around the Alps, 800 miles away. So we do really think that he is uh, an incomer and that he mm. has made this extraordinary journey during his lifetime. And, he, you know, he may have travelled even more extensively than that. But we know that at very least he came from there was an A and there was a B or maybe there was an A and a, and a G and there were several other places in between. But um, we know he, he grew up around the Alps and, mm. and ended up dying on the plains of Wiltshire. I, I I couldn't let you go, Alice, without talking about the um, the discovery in Cheddar. I, I love a bit of macabre history. Um, maybe you might tell me about this find and why it was significant. Yes, absolutely. So um, there are these caves in the Cheddar Gorge uh, on the Mendip Hills um, in in um, Somerset that are full of bones and are known to have been full of bones for a while. They were interestingly opened as show caves back in the 19th century. And I got slightly obsessed with that story too, because there was this really entertaining rivalry between the owners of the two big caves in the Cheddar Gorge. <laughs> and um, and I think that kind of leads into the uh, the, ar- the archaeological discovery of, of the bones as well, in that the bones of um, Cheddar Man, as he's become known, were, were found during some renovation inside um, Goff's Cave in the early 20th century. And there was there was always renovation going on inside Goss Cave and also just blasting. So in the 19th century, they were kind of always blasting through into new caverns to make it bigger and better than ever. 
And um, so that, yeah, so there's this one skeleton found and, uh, and then later on um, remains of um, several individuals. And um, the interesting thing about the, the earlier remains, so Cheddar Man is, about, is a burial from about 10,000 years ago. Mm. And that seems to be quite a formal burial in the way that you know, we might understand burials. The other bones are, are not formal burials and they have been interfered with. So the other bones um, are smashed up. Uh, we find long bones that have been smashed into. Uh, we've got long bones which have got interesting scratch marks on as well. Um, so one of them's got a kind of zigzag scratch mark. So maybe there's some kind of ritual element to this too. And if you're smashing up bones, then really you're only doing it for, for one reason, and that's to get at what's inside the bone, the marrow. <laughs> and there's other signs that um, people were interested in those bones from a nutritional perspective as well, which is that there are cut marks on the surface of the bones where muscles attach. So if you were butchering a human body, basically that's those are exactly the signs that we've got on these on these mm-hmm. bones from cheddar. And um, Sylvia Bello at the Natural History Museum has poured over all of these these fragments from the from cheddar caves and um, is completely convinced that what we're looking at is cannibalism. Um, and these bones are about twelve thousand years old. And I believe um, even some of the skulls had been crafted into drinking cups, which really goes full on in, into that. Um, they didn't dabble in cannibalism, it seems. They, they, they jumped in with both two feet. Is that something that's common in Britain? I mean, that, presumably that's why it's so significant. We don't see evidence of cannibalism a huge amount in, in the British Isles, do we? No, it's, it's, not, it's not common, but then it's actually not common to have remains from that period anyway. So right. it's, it's, it's quite un, unusual to have any remains from the Mesolithic, this kind of Stone Age in the middle, um, when people were still hunter-gatherers. So we, you know, we don't know what most people were doing with dead bodies. And um, it, whatever it is, it's, it's archaeologically invisible, whether it's you know, kind of sky burials where bodies are being left out to be picked apart by, by, by scavengers and carrion, or whether it's um, cremation and, and, and scattering, or whether it's bodies being put on little rafts and pushed out into rivers. Whatever they've done, they've disappeared the bodies. So we don't, mm. we just don't see the bodies. Um, so they're not, they're not burying and burying cremated bodies. Um, they're doing something else. So it's just occasionally that we get these glimpses. So um, they're, they're unusual. So Cheddar Man at 10,000 years ago is, is unusual. You know, he's buried. You know, why was he buried when, when other people don't seem to be? And then these bones, you know, were kind of left in a cave. Um, and we we don't really know what's going on there. You know, we don't we don't know why they're being eaten. Um, mm. And that's a really interesting question, because I think immediately we just we just see it as very macabre, obviously, to us today. But we have to kind of shelve that and go, right, that's our that's our response to it. What could it have been? And we have to be scientific about it. So we have to go, right, well, there's the evidence. What are all of the hypotheses that could explain this rather than just jumping to one conclusion? And I think that it's we can go some way with the with the evidence itself. So um, talking to Sylvia about it, she's she's convinced that this is nutritional cannibalism. In other words, um, it, is, you know, it is it is about eating the bodies. You know, it's kind of because, you know, there are cultures where um, bodies were defleshed, but the flesh isn't necessarily eaten. Um, so it could have been, it could have been that these bodies sort were of just ritualistic, yeah, celebrating ritualistic. a victory or something, um, or or just you know that's what you do to your grandma. That's a you know kind of respectful thing to do. Um, <laughs> so we know that 
we know that from, you know, particularly from the smashed up long bones to get at the marrow, this does look like um, an intent to eat the body, not just to deflesh it, to somehow get at the bones, which might be ritual artifacts. So we, we know that they were eating them. But, but then you've still got that question about whether that is something that you're doing because you're starving and desperate or because those are your enemies that you've killed and this is the final insult to them, that you eat them. Um, or that, um, again, this is what you do to your grandmother because this is what you've always done and you it's a perfectly respectful thing to do and that you are, you know, you are, you are eating that flesh and, and in some ways keeping that person alive by um, imbibing um, and, and consuming their flesh. You so sound like an advocate of it, Alice. Oh, no. <laughs> but isn't it fascinating? Because, you know, we, of course, you know, we're so anchored in our own cultural lens. Mm. And and I think that archaeology, like, you know, the, that, that old adage that travel broadens the mind, archaeology does that too. Yeah. And it says to us, you know, your way of doing things isn't normal. There is no normal way of being a human. There is no normal human behavior. There's just lots of different human behavior. And look at this behavior, which is so different from what you consider to be normal and standard. Um, and, it, and it's very, very different. So I, I, I think it's quite, it's quite enlightening um, to go on that kind of intellectual journey and think about um, all of those possibilities. Well, the Amesbury Archer and uh, the story of the Cheddar Cannibals are only two of seven stories unraveled in this book. It's called Ancestors, a prehistory of Britain in seven burials. If you happen to be in Belfast this afternoon, 3.30pm, uh, find out more, nisciencefestival.com. But for now, Alice Roberts, thanks very much. Thank you very much. You can see some of those images up on our Twitter page. It's twitter.com forward slash news talk science. Uh, that's it for this week's Future Proof. Thanks to production team Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Jojo Cardozo, who was on sound. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with more in the podcast feed on Tuesday. Have a great weekend.